My family and I are very glad to be back with you. If you weren't here last week, Dr. Roselle was, was here. and uh, My family and I were here on Sunday the week before we were on vacation, though. And it's always good to do that, but we are always grateful to be back home. I'm also very grateful that the black eye that I had for a few weeks here is finally gone. Because I will admit to you that I felt a little silly about how I got that injury until... I read an even sillier story of an athlete's injury that took place back in 1990. I'm going to share it with you. Back in 1990, uh, Glenn Allen Hill was a professional baseball player for the Toronto Blue Jays. And he showed up to a baseball game one day on crutches. And his elbows and his feet were all cut up. His knees were all banged up. And I cannot imagine how difficult it must have been for him to share with his friends and his teammates, and all the reporters who were there, why he was on crutches. But he had to tell them, and this is what he said. The night before, he was at his house, and he was asleep, and he had a dream. And in his dream, a whole bunch of spiders were chasing after him. Now, that wouldn't be a pleasant night of sleep for any of us. But you see, the problem for Hill is that he has arachnophobia, which is he has an intense fear of spiders. So he panicked. Half awake, he ran up some stairs in his house into another room, fell, and crashed right through a glass table. Now, thankfully, he eventually fully recovered from his injuries, but his reputation, we can't really say the same thing about. Around the league, he became known as Spider-Man, and he, <laughs> he never really quite lived that one down. Now, the good news for people with arachnophobia, like Hill, is that they'll probably never be harmed by a spider. Uh, most of them will probably never be chased by a horde of them like Hill was in his dream. Arachnophobia is a fear that a good number of people have, but, but danger from spiders is a reality that few people will ever face. Another fear that some people have is something called hadophobia. Hadophobia. Hadophobia is simply the fear of Hades or the fear of hell. It's this intense fear and anxiety concerning hell. Uh, so intense that the person who has this will avoid any thought of hell at all costs, even avoiding churches, any place where it might come to mind or be mentioned. In my opinion, this fear is even more understandable than arachnophobia because sadly, hell will be a reality for many people. And it is a dreadful place. Hell is described in the Bible as a deep pit, a place of eternal fire, of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the abyss, a bottomless place of torment and punishment, eternal destruction away from God's presence. Scripture indicates that there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell, but it is clear that it will all be terrible nonetheless. Now, as Christians, we do not need to fear hell personally because we've been forever pardoned from the penalty of it through faith in Jesus Christ. The rest of the world is correct to fear hell, yet they don't need to resign themselves to it because the pardon from it is available to them if only they will go to Jesus in faith. However, hell is such a hard topic, it's so dreadful a place, that although many Christians don't have hateophobia, many Christians are nevertheless afraid to even mention hell. 
They don't want to talk about it to others. Some preachers don't want to talk about it from the stage. In fact, a number of churches today have started teaching the false doctrine of annihilationism, which is simply that when the unsaved person dies, they are annihilated. They cease to exist forever. And they teach that because it's more acceptable to them. And it's sad because we want people to be saved, but many of us are too afraid to tell people what they need to be saved from. Christians, if we believe in the Bible, if we believe in the Gospel, if we believe in heaven, then we must believe in the reality of a place called hell. So what are we supposed to do with a hard topic like this? We can't ignore it. Jesus didn't. Jesus actually spoke more often on hell than he did on heaven. Yet today, we talk a lot more about heaven than we do about hell, because heaven is more palatable to people. But what should we do then? As Christians, I want us to understand this morning why we believe in hell and the horror of it. I want us to understand why hell is consistent with the nature and character of God, with the truth of Scripture, and how we as believers should respond to the truth of it. So let's do that together this morning with hearts prepared to draw near to our Savior who rescued us from that fate. I'm going to encourage you to follow along by turning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 958. Page 958, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, as you turn there, let me share with you for just a moment, because I think this is good for us to know, let me share with you why hell even exists. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus was speaking, and he said that on the day of judgment, unbelievers will depart, he said, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Let me tell you what that means. God made hell for Satan and for the demons. God did not make hell for people. That was not its created purpose. We were created as humans to have a relationship with God forever. The problem is that mankind chose sin over him. And hell is now the outcome for our sin and unbelief. But to understand this, I want us to first recognize who God is, recognize his character. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. It says this. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day that He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So let's understand some of the things that are being written here. You see, these Christians were facing persecutions for their faith in Jesus. And how often we face terrible times as Christians and we start to think that maybe God doesn't see our pain. Maybe He doesn't see our tormentors. And maybe He doesn't hear our cry. That's far from true, believer. God sees the things that we go through. Scripture reminds us time and time again that there is rich reward for those believers who endure these things. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the glory also of our future in heaven with the Lord. But what we also learn here is that God doesn't just see His people. He sees every person, including those who reject Him. Including those who reject the truth. Those who embrace sin. And including those who persecute His people. These are the very ones who will face His judgment. One of the reasons why we believe in hell is because of who God is. It's because of His character and His nature. And the first thing about His character to understand is that God is just. That's what we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just. Well, if God is just, then He must punish evil. And the ultimate punishment for evil takes place in hell, which is described in that passage as everlasting destruction, where those evildoers will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And this isn't just true for those who persecute Christians. Listen to what Romans chapter 2 says. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. In other words, it's everyone whose stubborn and unrepentant hearts refuse to trust in Christ who are going to enter into that final judgment in a place called hell. And this, this is where the world cries foul. This is where they say, well, this, this can't be justice. And they'll say, you know what? If God does that, God isn't good. Is that... Is that true? Yeah, I read some stories this week about a particular judge in the state of New York who has been letting alleged killers go free without any bail. And for most of us, when we hear stories like that, or we read stories in the news of judges letting criminals off the hook, letting murderers and rapists and thieves go free, we don't call those judges good. We don't call them just. We call them corrupt. Yet, that's exactly what people hope God will be like. They hope that at the end of their life, He'll turn a blind eye to their sin and their lawless deeds, that He'll give them a pass. But if God is good, and if God is just, He can't do that. So some people say, well, okay, well, it's just that the punishment of hell is too severe. But since when do, when do criminals get to choose their punishment? When do they get to act as their own judge? No, no, no. Criminals must answer to the laws that have been set forth. And all of us who have broken God's laws are going to answer to the lawgiver, and that is God 
himself. You see, I don't think that hell is the real problem. No, I think the real problem is our understanding of sin. Because as people, we tend to think lightly about our sins. We tend to think that lying, cheating, lusting, adultery, stealing, filthy language, chasing after idols, selfishness, that all our sins, they're not a big deal. So hell seems a little extreme to us. Or could it be that hell shows us how extremely evil our sins really are? I think we failed to grasp the reality that each of our sins are an infinitely heinous capital crime in the eyes of the eternal God of the universe. And therefore, our sin deserves eternal punishment. Many years ago, there's a Christian in a church who shared how he came to understand in his life the gravity of sin. He shared in prayer meeting that he once heard a missionary say, that every outburst of anger pierced the heart of Jesus. Well, since this particular Christian knew he had a quick temper, he was trying to figure out what this really meant. So he went home and he hung up on his wall a picture of Jesus Christ. And every time that he gave in to his quick temper, every time that he exposed his anger, he would put a, a pin, a needle, in the picture that was on the wall. One, it didn't take very long until that picture was just filled with needles all over the Savior. And he broke down in tears and resolved that he wasn't going to let his temper continue in his life. If only we realized the reality of sinning against our perfect Creator. I don't think we always grasp the weight of our sin. Of course, some people just say, well, you know, if hell is real, then God just isn't loving. Not a loving God. On the contrary, I would argue that hell is consistent with a loving God. I want you to consider these things. First, I want you to consider the fact that God God gives people the freedom to choose whether or not they want to believe in Him and worship Him. If these things were forced on us, then I think we would agree that God would be a dictator of our allegiance and worship, not a loving creator who gently calls us to himself. But it's in love that God gives us this freedom to decide whether or not we're going to accept him or reject him. And you see, the same way that God's not going to force people to walk with him in this life, he's not going to force people to be with him for all eternity. The the freedom that he gives us, it, it proves his love. And by choosing sin and unbelief, people are choosing for themselves an eternity in hell. That's their choice. God gives them that freedom. Well, the second thing is that while God's justice demands that evil be called to account, it's in His love that He desires that all us evildoers have a chance to be forgiven and made right. Despite all the laws He's given that we've broken, He wants us to come to Him in repentance. God desires that every person would enter into the beauty of heaven, not the horror of hell. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says this. It says, The Lord isn't slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
That's God's desire. God doesn't want people to perish in hell. Why? Because he's loving. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Hell doesn't remove the loving character of God. In fact, it actually shows us how much God loves us because of the lengths that he has gone to in order to save us from hell. What does that very famous verse, John 3.16, say? It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. See, some people, they don't want to give God, they don't want to give Jesus the time of day because of the reality of hell. A famous atheist named Bertrand Russell said this years ago, He said, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Well, Bertrand Russell was right about one thing. Jesus believes in hell. So much so that Jesus willingly came to this earth to suffer an excruciating death to save us. From hell. See, the second reason why we believe in hell as Christians is because of what Jesus did for us. He died for us. He died for us, believers. There's a reason that he did that. In fact, I think we should remember what Christ went through. The pain that he endured would have been immense. Because for him, it started when he was whipped by the Romans. Now, the Romans, the Romans had whips that were designed to tear the victim's flesh away. And they would whip from the below the neck all the way down to the back of the knees. A lot of people didn't survive that scourging. Many of them died. But Jesus didn't. Now after that, they pressed a crown of thorns down on his head. And I can only believe that they were sure that those thorns buried themselves deep into his skin. And then the guards, they took a staff and they took turns beating him on the head with it. It was after these things that they forced him to carry his cross to the execution site. And when he got there, they drove a nail, two nails, one into each wrist. Then they joined his feet together, put another nail through those. After that, he would have struggled when he was hanging on the cross to breathe. So he would have pushed up on that nail in his feet, pulled at the ones in his wrist to straighten himself up, rubbing his bloody back against the splintered cross so that he could get a breath. By the way, our English word excruciating comes from crucifixion. But in addition to all the physical pain, Jesus also took the weight of all of our sins on his shoulders when he was on the cross. When he was hanging there in Matthew chapter 27, we find that Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in that moment, Jesus experienced what he had never experienced before. He experienced separation from the Father. Now by that, I do not mean that he ceased to be God. That is not true. No, but there's a separation between him and the Father. Because God is holy. He cannot look on sin. And as all our sins were laid on his shoulders, the Father turned his back on the Son. And of all the things that Jesus faced, the beatings, the betrayals, the whipping, the nails, the exhaustion, the pain, I believe that all these things paled in comparison to the crushing weight 
of that sin on his shoulders, the crushing separation that he felt in the moment that he paid for our sin. Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before that, prophesied of the suffering the Messiah would go through and said that the Savior would be despised and rejected, stricken by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He'd be led like a lamb to the slaughter, cut off from the land of the living. He would pour out his life unto death, numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. Of course Jesus believed in hell. Look what he went through to save us from it. We believe in hell because Jesus died to rescue us from hell, believers. Why why would Jesus, why would the eternal Son of God go through this brutal death if after this life evil people simply disappear? Why, Why would he suffer so much unless it was to save us from an eternity of suffering? When Jesus died, he satisfied the holy wrath of God so that we could be rescued from the wrath of hell. That's why Jesus did all of this. And if Jesus, if Jesus left the glory of heaven and came to this broken world for three decades just to die at the end of that, just to die that type of death, you would imagine that Jesus probably would have warned us about hell when he was here. And he did. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. See one of these warnings together. Luke chapter 16. It's page 850 if you're following along with those Bibles here in the sanctuary. Page 850, Luke chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 19. I want you to listen to the story that Jesus told. Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus is speaking. He said this. He said, there was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but... But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
See, another reason that we believe in hell as Christians is because of what Jesus said. And Jesus said time and time again that hell is a very real place. There's a lot that we learn from this story. There's a few things to take away that I'd like to share. When people say things like, well, you know, I just, I guess, I guess I'd rather be in hell if that's where my loved ones are going to be. Your loved ones don't want you to be there. And even if you went there with them, there would be no comfort in each other's presence because there is no comfort there. In that place, there's no more chance for repentance or rescue. Your fate is sealed. It's set in place. We learn that that torment's very real. There's no escape. There's no relief. And it's far from the presence of God. We also learn, by the way, that wealth, all the physical possessions that you might have in this life, are not an indicator of salvation in your life. Some people seem to gain the whole world, but they lose their soul because they never gave it to Jesus in the first place. Then there are others in this life, like Lazarus, who have nothing in the world, but they have Jesus. And so when they pass on from this world, they enter into the presence of their Savior. Look, the point is, if Jesus talked about hell, and he did, then we need to pay attention. When Jesus talked about hell, he wasn't gleefully talking about it like some people try and accuse him of. No, no. He was warning us to flee the wrath that's to come. That's his point. And the sad thing is that in his day, like in our day, people spent so much time being offended by the very idea that they might end up in hell that they didn't spend any time thinking about his offer of salvation. And therein lies the true problem. People are so repulsed by hell that they're actually running headfirst to it in their unbelief. They refuse to see the overwhelming kindness and love of God. They refuse to see the immense evil of their sin. And sadly, that means many of them will one day find themselves there with no one else to blame. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with our stubborn hearts. Church, here's the thing. We believe in hell, not just because the Bible tells us about it over and over again. We believe in hell because it's consistent with the character of God who must punish evil if he is loving and just and good and holy. We believe in hell because Jesus told us about it. And we believe in the horror of hell because Jesus died to rescue us from that. I understand this is a hard reality. But it's an important truth for us to understand. I also recognize there are a lot of us here who are Christians. And you might think to ourselves, well, Andrew, we're already saved. Why do we have to talk about hell? Well, believers, I want us to consider three, three simple ways this morning that the truth of hell should impact those of us who have been rescued from it. And the first one is this. The reality of hell should cause us as Christians to daily praise Jesus for our salvation and for his sacrifice. Every day we should praise him for that. This week I was reading, in my devotions, I was reading part of Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to go and do ministry. He empowers them to do this. And when they come back, they're just rejoicing that they were able to do these miracles, that the demons even submitted to them in the name of the Lord. And Jesus told them, that the greatest thing to rejoice in wasn't that the demons submitted to them in his name. It wasn't these miracles. That the greatest thing to rejoice in was that their names were written in heaven. That was the greatest thing. Christians, salvation should be our great and constant praise. 
Jesus saved us from an eternity separated from him. And we get to have an eternity with him in the glory of heaven. Second, the reality of hell should be our constant reminder that we need to share the truth with people about how they can be in heaven. Instead of running from the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of hell should cause us to run out and find our lost neighbors and family and friends and co-workers and share with them the truth that Jesus died to save them. Which brings us to the third thing, and that's that we need to tell people what Jesus died to save them from. We do need to tell people and warn them about hell. But please understand, I'm not talking about fire and brimstone preaching. That's not what I'm talking about. One evangelist put it this way. He said, look, we don't seek fear-filled converts. We seek tear-filled converts. Hell shows the reality of sin. And that reality should break the sinner's heart so that he or she goes to the Lord for true forgiveness. That's, that's what we want. And the problem today, the problem with so much of our efforts to share the gospel today, especially here in America, one of the problems is that we, we present a Savior who was crucified and who died for sins and wants to save us, but we don't tell people what they need to be saved from, so they don't really think they need Jesus. Saved from what? Their life is fine. We need to warn them about hell. An evangelist named Ray Comfort explained the difference between these gospel presentations. He explained it this way. He said, imagine that you're on a plane and consider two different men on this plane. The first man is approached and told to put on a parachute that's given to him because it would improve his flight. Well, he's kind of skeptical. doesn't understand how that would be the case, but he decides to experiment and see if it's true. So he puts the parachute on and he quickly notices the weight of it and that it's hard for him to sit upright. But he consoles himself with the fact that he was told they would give him a better flight. So he decides to give it a little time. But after a while, he can't help but notice that the other passengers are pointing and laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute in a plane. Eventually, in humiliation, he takes it off, throws it on the ground, and sinks down in his seat. Discouraged, disillusioned, he's determined that he's never going to put one of those on again because as far as he's concerned, he was lied to. The second man is given a parachute and told to put it on because at any moment he'd be jumping 20,000 feet out of the plane. Well, that man gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't notice the weight of it on his back or that he can't sit upright. He's able to withstand the mockery of the passengers because his mind is consumed with the fact that at any moment he's going to be jumping out of the plane. Later in the flight, when a stewardess comes down and trips and coffee spills over that second man's lap, does it hurt him? Sure it does. But he doesn't take the parachute off and throw it on the ground and get upset. Why would he do that? He didn't put it on for a better flight. He put it on to save him from the jump to come. See, the point is this. A lot of Christians today are quick to tell people to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Give your life to him, and they say that Jesus will improve your life. He'll make it easier, make it more comfortable, richer, more prosperous. Look, Jesus might do that, but we're not promised that in the Bible. No, the Bible doesn't promise that. The Bible promises that Christians will face trials, temptations, and tribulations. Look, Jesus is going to be with us through these things, but Jesus doesn't guarantee he's going to make our life rich or simple. Jesus guarantees us eternal life. Ray Comfort said, instead of telling people the parachute's going to give them a better flight, we need to warn them about the jump that is to come. Believers, instead of telling people Jesus is going to make their life easy, we need to warn them about hell and tell them that Jesus died to save them from hell. We need to warn them about that wrath that's to come. That's why Jesus died for them. And we need to tell them that. We need to tell them that. We need to do it sincerely. We need to do it in love. 
But we need to do that. We need to actually tell people the truth. So here's the takeaway for us this morning, church. Very simply, that we who have been saved from hell, we must never forget what we have been saved from. I know that's simple, and I'm going to tell you why this is important. So we don't like to think about hell. None of us do. But Christians, we who have been saved from hell must never forget what we have been saved from. And this is why. Because when we start to forget that faith that Jesus rescued us from, when we start to forget about the reality of hell, first we stop praising salvation, and second we stop sharing the gospel with others. And we should never do those things. We should never forget. We should never stop praising God. We should never stop sharing the gospel. Church, let's commit ourselves this week and today that we will do just that. We will praise God for our salvation and that we will find somebody we can share the truth of it with. Because I am certain that in all of our lives, there are people who just don't know. Maybe that's true for you. Maybe you're here, and if you were honest, you would admit that you really don't know for sure what's going to happen after this life. You can't say with confidence that when this life is over, God's going to welcome you into heaven with open arms. Friend, if that's true for you, you need to understand that there is only one way to heaven. It's not good works. It's not going to church. It's not tithing. It's not being generous with others. None of those things are getting you to heaven. Friend, you need to understand that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that you can be made right in God's sight. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's your faith in Christ. It's when you give Him your life. That's when you are saved. And if you have never made that decision, we want to give you the opportunity to do that before you leave. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's where you're at this morning, you really you just don't know. I want you to understand, you can come down with me during this final song. You can come up here, talk to me, talk about any questions you might have. You can look at more of what the Scripture says if you'd like. If you want someone to pray with, come to the front here. Pray at the altar. People will surround you and pray with you. But if you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus Christ, to accept that forgiveness that He's offering, that salvation that he's offering, I don't want you to have to wait another moment. Because, friend, three days after he died, Jesus powerfully rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he's been waiting your whole life to save you. And if you're ready, if you're ready to make that decision, you can follow me in a simple prayer like this one. You can say, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've broken your laws. I know that I've done bad things. I know that I'm deserving of an eternity separated from you. But Jesus, I know you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you didn't stay in the grave, but that you rose from the dead. And Jesus, today I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Today I'm asking you to be my Savior. Jesus, today I'm giving you my life. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here today who did make that decision, that they would tell someone so the church can rejoice and help us to be a church that does rejoice 
every time someone gives their life to the Lord and every day help us to be a church that rejoices that you have rescued us from hell. You've brought us into your family. You call us your people. We don't deserve that. None of us do. That's your grace. That's your love. And we got to go tell some people about that. Oh, Father, I, I pray that the reality of hell would make us quick to go and share with someone the good news of the gospel. That Jesus died to save them. Fill each of us with that passion, with that desire. Give us a burden to do that. And I pray that every day we would praise you. Father, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for your overwhelming goodness and grace and mercy. I pray that we would be a place where you are glorified. I pray you'd be glorified in our lives and with everything that happens when we leave this place today. And we ask once more that if there's anybody here who's still not sure where they stand with you, don't let them leave like that. I pray they'd be willing to come down the aisle, talk to me. They'd find someone to talk to before they leave. And Father, for those of us who are your people, help us to get ready to shout your praise in just a moment here. Because we love you, but you proved you love us more, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.